Good. So a very, very warm welcome to the ninth meeting this academic year of the Aristotelian Society. And it is a great pleasure for me to introduce tonight's speaker, Louise Richardson, who is a lecturer in York. Uh, Louise's work is largely concerned with questions about perception, although unlike a lot of philosophers who are interested in problems of perception, she pays special attention to different features of different senses, and indeed, as we'll see tonight, to non-sensory perception as well. So the format will be the usual uh, one. Uh, Louise will speak for between 45 minutes and an hour. Uh, we'll have a break at that point for tea or coffee, and then we'll have the question and answer session, which will go on to about 7.15 p.m. So uh, without further ado, I'm pleased to hand over to Louise, whose title is Perceptual Activity and Bodily Awareness. Thank you. So thank you very much for having me and for the nice introduction. The criteria for distinguishing the senses that H.P. Grice introduced in his Some Remarks About the Senses have been very much discussed. But the question with which he began that paper is this one. So how might we meet the claim that some creature has a sense different to the familiar five, whereby meet the claim he means argue against it? One way we might do that is to argue that it is in fact one of the familiar senses, and in order to do that, you might appeal to your favourite Gricean criteria. So you might say, well, it's a sense of sight after all because it's a way of perceiving colour, for example. Another way in which you might meet the claim that a creature has a sense different from the familiar five is to say that it's not a sense at all. And in order to argue in that way, we'll need an account not just of how the senses differ from one another, but of how senses differ from other faculties. On the face of it, all you need to do in order to give such an account, I say all you need to do as if it's easy, but the thing you need to do in order to give an account like this is to say what makes perception distinctive amongst all the ways we have of finding out about the world. After all, no sense is a non-perceptual faculty. It's not obvious, however, that all perceptual faculties are senses. Bodily awareness is, on the face of it, a perceptual faculty that's not a sense. So we don't usually count bodily awareness as a sense anyway. So maybe in order to give an account of uh, how the senses differ from other faculties, we need to say not just what makes perception distinctive, but what makes sense perception, i.e. perception in our five familiar modalities, distinctive. And this possibility is the background against which what follows should be understood. So I'm going to focus in this paper on the much narrower question of how bodily awareness and sense perception differ. The broader motivating question of whether in virtue of these differences, bodily awareness does not count amongst the senses will remain largely in the background. What I want to argue is that bodily awareness and sense perception differ in a particular and somewhat overlooked way, namely agentially. There's something that we do with respect to or contribute to perception in the five familiar senses that we don't do or contribute in the case of bodily awareness. So the first two sections are devoted to some preliminaries, saying what I have in mind by bodily awareness and what's meant by perceptual activity. And then the rest of the paper will be devoted to trying to defend this claim. 
So bodily awareness, as I use the term here and as it's used elsewhere, is a kind of catch-all term. It picks out bodily sensations like pains and itches and also proprioceptive experiences. There is ample reason to think that bodily awareness is perceptual awareness of the body, although I'm not going to defend that here. So not least among these reasons is the fact that when all goes well, your awareness of, say, the pain in your foot or the location of your hands is awareness of a mind-independent object, just as it is at the time when you're aware of it. So in this way, bodily awareness is just like seeing, hearing, touching, tasting, or smelling something. Nevertheless, bodily awareness clearly differs from our stereotype of perception in a number of ways. The stereotype we no doubt get from thinking about perception in the five familiar modes. So call this stereotypical sort of perception, sense perception. Some differences between bodily awareness and sense perception are, broadly speaking, representational. They're a matter of what we perceive in these different ways. So arguably, in the bodily mode, you perceive just one thing, your body. Whereas in sense perception, in, in contrast, you perceive all sorts of things. Other differences are phenomenological. They're a matter of what experiences are like. At least part of what's meant by saying that bodily awareness is awareness of one's body from the inside is something phenomenological. You don't seem to be aware of your feet or your hands from anywhere when you perceive those things in the bodily mode. In contrast to the way in which one is aware of the things that one sees, for instance, and roughly speaking, from the location of one's eyes. So bodily awareness lacks the perspectival phenomenal character that sense perception has. So I want to argue that bodily awareness differs from sense perception in a third way, namely agentially. There's a difference in what we do in sense perception and in bodily awareness. In the next section, I make some brief remarks on the very idea of perceptual activity. There's an important respect in which perceptual experience has to be a passive phenomenon. If it's right to say that perception is just a kind of openness to the world, then perception must be passive in the respect that this notion of openness implies. And furthermore, if perceptual experience is to play its epistemological role in telling us about the world, then it must be responsive to how that world is in a way that precludes its being something that we just do. So things in the world, rather than we ourselves, must play the right kind of role in determining how things seem to us in perception, if perceptual experience is to put us in a position to know about those things. And that means it's got to be false to say that perceiving just is acting. Nevertheless, we clearly make some kind, and probably more than one kind, of non-passive contribution to perception. And the kind of perceptual activity I'll be concerned with (coughs) is that which we refer to using the terms looking and listening and so on. Looking at the geese on the campus at the University of York is an activity of mine, and so is listening to them honking. In vision and hearing, we have the vocabulary to distinguish between the passive experience, seeing and hearing, and the perceptual activity, looking and listening. In touch, taste and smell, the same words have to do double duty. Touching, feeling, tasting and smelling can denote both the perceptual activity, so something like looking and listening, or the passive experience, like hearing or seeing. And we can also identify perceptual activities in the bodily mode, although, again, we don't have a special vocabulary to help us to do so. 
But it seems as if I do something analogous to looking when I hold my attention fixed on, for example, the relative locations of my feet under the desk, perceived from the inside, of course, and in the bodily mode. So perceptual activity, as I'm using it here, picks out something that one does and not something that merely happens to you or in one, like the growth of hair. And in using activity in this way, I follow Thomas Crowther. Others, too, have used perceptual activity to denote something between full-blown intentional action and mere happening. So David Vellerman, for example, uses activity to denote things that we can be said to do, but which don't meet all the conditions for intentional action, such as, if one agrees with Vellerman, being under conscious control. Or on Harry Frankfurt's view, for example, it's guidance by the subject that makes the difference between bodily movements that one makes and bodily movements that just happen. But not all the bodily movements that one makes are full-blown intentional actions. Those, he says, uh, are just things that are undertaken more or less deliberately or self-consciously. Those are the actions that you intend to perform. So by calling the perceptual doings with which I'm interested activities, I mean, like Frankfurt and Vallemin, to gesture at a middle ground between mere happenings and intentional actions. And obviously there's more work to be done to say where the boundaries of that middle ground lie, but I'm not going to try and do that here. And I'm not sure how to do it either. So as Thomas Crowther has argued, after Brian O'Shaughnessy, perceptual activity comes in more than one variety. In vision and hearing, we have, again, familiar vocabulary that reflects this variety. We can be said to look for or listen for or look out for or listen out for something. In those cases, performing instrumental perceptual activities that, when successful, bring about seeing or hearing the intended aim. As when, for example, I look out for the arrival of a wren in my garden, and when the wren, the wren arrives, my activity of looking out for it brings about seeing. And once I've seen the object, such as the wren, that I've been looking out for or looking for, then this perceptual activity of looking out for or looking for it ceases. But we can also look at, watch, or listen to things. Performing these non-instrumental perceptual activities doesn't bring about seeing or hearing an object, since in order to count as looking at or listening to something over a period of time, you have to be seeing or hearing it throughout that period of time. What I contribute in these cases is the maintenance rather than the bringing about of seeing or hearing. I identically maintain perceptual awareness of an object rather than agentially initiating such awareness in the first place. So I borrow Crowther's term perceptual monitoring to denote this activity of maintaining perceptual awareness of things, or as he puts it elsewhere, maintaining conscious perceptual contact with them. So we perform both instrumental perceptual activities and perceptual monitoring in the case of touch, taste and smell too, although in the absence of vocabulary that helps us to make the distinction between these perceptual activity types. And the same goes for bodily awareness. So in bodily awareness, I could, for example, feel out for my foot when it's been anaesthetised, waiting for the anaesthetic to wear off. And I can perceptually monitor my foot in the bodily mode, as I can the goose when I look at it. The agential difference between bodily awareness and sense perception 
is a difference in how one perceptually monitors. So the claim isn't that one of these kinds of perceptual activity only occurs in sense perception and not in bodily awareness. They both do. The difference is in how this second kind of perceptual activity happens in sense perception and in bodily awareness. So to see this, let's consider what perceptual monitoring in general involves. In order to successfully perceptually monitor some object over an interval of time, two conditions must be met during that interval. So first of all, you have to perceive the object over the interval of time. And secondly, you have to attend to it. So why think that that's true? Well, for one, there's a reason to think that that's what Crowther has in mind, and perceptual monitoring is his notion. The perceptual awareness or conscious perceptual contact with an object that on his view one maintains in perceptual monitoring involves not just perceiving an object but also noticing it. But also, if perceptual monitoring is to capture such ordinary notions as looking at things, then one can't count surely as perceptually monitoring a thing if one is not to any degree attending to it. So, that's the claim. If you perceptually monitor things, then you must both perceive them and attend to them. In order for condition two to attend, so in order to perceptually attend to an object, uh, condition one must also, of course, be met. But the converse doesn't hold. When one attends to something one perceives, that thing is highlighted. It's brought into the foreground of experience. That doesn't mean that one perceives nothing else but that which is foregrounded or highlighted. Quite the reverse. Talk of the experiential foreground brings with it a sense of an experiential background. Highlighting implies that something stands out from other things of which one is also in some sense aware. So to say that attention involves foregrounding or highlighting is to say very little about it. But this is no objection here where this little is all that needs to be said. In perceptual monitoring in any mode, whether sense perceptual or bodily, one agentially keeps the things that one is monitoring in the foreground of experience. So condition two obtains then because one makes it so. Two obtains because one is agentially ensuring that O is being kept in the foreground when O is being perceptually monitored. And because the obtaining of condition two depends on the obtaining of condition one, One's ensuring that condition two obtains requires that one obtains also. To keep an object in the foreground, I must perceive that object, which is to say, stand in a perceptual relation to it. What I want to argue in the rest of the paper is that in sense perceptual monitoring, looking at things, for example, or listening to them, the perceptual relation itself is agentially maintained. So one keeps the object one's looking at, say, in the foreground, partly by ensuring that one maintains the perceptual relation one stands into that object. And the same is not true in bodily awareness. In perceptual monitoring in the bodily mode, or bodily perceptual monitoring, one agentially keeps, say, one's feet in the foreground of experience, but the perceptual relation one stands into them is maintained quite passively. Or so I'm going to argue. So first of all, I'll argue that in sense perceptual monitoring, you agentially maintain the perceptual relation that you stand into objects, and then I'll argue that the same thing isn't true in the bodily mode.
The idea of agentially maintaining the perceptual relation to objects in sense perception is not quite as obscure as it might sound. A basic idea is that, to again take vision as the easiest to talk about example, when you're looking at something, part of what you're doing is keeping it in view or keeping it in sight. And one does this in order to keep it highlighted or foregrounded when one is perceptually monitoring the relevant things. That this is something we can do shouldn't be in doubt. What may be more controversial is that one does this whenever one looks at something or otherwise sense perceptually monitors it. Agentially maintaining the perceptual relation in sense perception involves ensuring that certain disabling conditions for perceiving things don't obtain. So a disabling condition for perceiving something in some modality is just a state of affairs such that if it obtains, perception of that object in that modality does not occur. And there are, of course, many disabling conditions for all kinds of perception, bodily awareness included. So, for example, if my visual receptors are really badly damaged, then I won't see the goose in front of me. Or if certain receptors in my hand are badly damaged enough, then I'm not going to perceive my hand in the bodily mode. So though there are disabling conditions for both sense perception and bodily awareness, only sense perception has disabling conditions of the kind that I will call Strawsonian. So I call them Strawsonian not only because it sounds quite fancy, but also because, as you'll see later, they play a special role in Strawson's account of perception. And it's these Strawsonian disabling conditions that one ensures aren't met when one's perceptually monitoring and thus agentially maintains the perceptual relation one's standing into objects. So the just-mentioned disabling conditions, the having damaged visual receptors, having damaged receptors in your hand, are not Strawsonian disabling conditions. But they share some features with them. So, for example... They're canonical disabling conditions for perceiving objects in the relevant modality. So what does this mean? Well, explain it in terms of a contrast. So you can imagine that on some very strange occasion, the world is such that you're not going to see the goose that's in front of you if you have your hand behind your back. Now, that's not a canonical disabling condition for seeing anything. It would be the result of a particular and peculiar circumstance. In contrast, having badly damaged visual receptors is a canonical disabling condition for visual perception of the goose or any other object. <coughs> Another feature that the two disabling conditions thus mentioned, or so far mentioned, share with Strawsonian disabling conditions is that they are total disabling conditions. And this means that they're the conditions, the obtaining of which means that you don't perceive the object in question in the relevant modality at all. So some conditions, in contrast, just disable the perception of the property of an object, like its colour, in the way that certain kinds of lighting might. Or some conditions disable only optimal perception of an object in the way that being intoxicated or tired might. Having badly damaged visual receptors is a total disabling condition for visual perception of the goose. So as I've said, Strawsonian disabling conditions too are canonical and total. But the disabling conditions just mentioned are not Strawsonian. What's distinctive about the Strawsonian disabling conditions for perceiving something is that they're all further specifications 
of what it is to be in the wrong place to perceive something in some modality, specifically because it's either out of range or it's masked or obscured. Strawsonian disabling conditions for perceiving things differ across the five familiar modalities. If something's behind me or behind an opaque object in front-lit conditions, I won't see it. I might still hear it, of course, if it's loud enough and not too far away. Unless an odour is in my nose, I won't smell it, the odour, or if you think you smell the sources of odours, the source of the odour too. If something's not on, which is to say in contact with my tactually sensitive surfaces, even indirectly, then I won't perceive it by touch. And similarly, not being in contact with the appropriate surfaces of my mouth disables taste or gustatory perception of something. So in sense perceptual monitoring, one ensures that the perceptual relation one stands into an object is maintained by ensuring that conditions like these don't obtain. So we can say more specifically that it's Strawsonian disabling conditions that one ensures don't obtain in sense perceptual monitoring. So sense perceptual monitoring, such as looking and listening and so on, requires a gentle maintenance of the perceptual relation, partly because Strawsonian disabling conditions can all too easily obtain. We perceivers move about a lot, and other things have a tendency to move about a lot too, both the things that we want to perceive and other things that can get in the way. Amongst all this moving about, if I'm to keep, for example, looking at the goose, then I move around to make sure that the disabling conditions for seeing it don't obtain. If I'm looking at it, I move myself or my head or my eyes so that things don't obscure it from my point of view and so that it doesn't go out of range. And this ensures that the visual perceptual relation I stand into it is maintained. Not all maintenance of the perceptual relation involves actual bodily movement. Sometimes I don't need to move in order to maintain the perceptual relation to something. Suppose I'm sat by a window looking at a tree on a windless day. I don't move at all, yet surely I'm still looking at the tree. There are two ways in which I might still be maintaining the perceptual relation I stand into the tree. So first of all, I might ensure that the relevant Strawsonian disabling conditions aren't met in this case, not by moving but by staying, keeping my body or parts of it where they are. If the tree stays still, as trees are wont to do, and there's nothing else around, I'm best off staying where I am, if I want to keep seeing it. Staying, staying still is not doing very much, but it's not in this case doing nothing. Second, to the extent that I'm really looking at the tree to any degree, I am prepared or disposed to make the bodily movements or stayings that may be necessary in order to ensure that the tree doesn't get out of range or become obscured. This disposition may of course fail to manifest itself for a number of reasons. Perhaps because I'm not, after all, very interested in the tree, or I'm supposed to be doing something else, or I'm listening to the radio, which is on the other side of the room, and I'd rather stay close to that. It's consistent with being disposed to ensure that a Strawsonian disabling condition doesn't obtain, that the circumstances are such that the disposition is very unlikely to manifest itself. Nevertheless, I agentially maintain 
the perceptual relation. I stand into something to the extent that I have this disposition. Now, put perhaps another more accurate way, there is an agential difference between having the disposition and not having the disposition at all. If I don't have the disposition at all, then I don't count as looking at the tree. So, of course, I don't want to deny that the perceptual relation is ever maintained passively when one's perceiving things. This might be the case when presented with a stimulus that's continuous, intense and distracting, for example. And perhaps, as Crowther puts it, in a state of extreme perceptual reverie, the perceptual relation one stands into objects in one's vicinity is maintained wholly passively. However, in such cases, one is not looking at or listening to anything, or at least not in the sense that implies that one is doing anything. So there might be a sense of looking, in which one counts as looking at something just if you've got your eyes open and you're pointed in the right direction. If so, that's not the sense of looking that I'm concerned with here. So, I've argued up to now that one agentially maintains the perceptual relation one stands into objects in sense perceptual monitoring. Now to argue that we don't do the same in the bodily mode. First of all, we can't maintain the perceptual relation we stand into our bodies by ensuring that Strawsonian disabling conditions for perceiving it don't obtain. And that's just because it has no Strawsonian disabling conditions. So your body cannot be out of range or obscured to bodily awareness as the goose can be to vision. So if I had a lot more time and was a bit more inventive, I could go through a number of counterexamples to this claim. But instead, I'm going to give you a recipe for dealing with counterexamples, which puts me in some danger, I think, during the question period. And I'll show how this recipe can be used to deal with one apparent counterexample and hopefully that's true of all the others that you can think of. That is a dangerous thing to say. Anyway, this is how to deal with purported counterexamples. So you can say either that the apparent Strawsonian disabling condition for bodily awareness is not, after all, a canonical disabling condition, which Strawsonian disabling conditions are, or it's not a total disabling condition, so it's just disables the perception of a property of your body, for example, or optimal perception of your body or that it's not a matter of your body being out of range or obscured. And we could also say, and if we think about the apparent Strawsonian bodily disabling condition, it turns out to be analogous to non-Strawsonian disabling conditions for sense perception. So here's this uh, recipe applied to one apparent counterexample. So suppose that in a cold room, having sat still for a time, I can no longer feel my foot in its current location. So it's being in its current location is a disabling condition for perceiving my foot under these circumstances. And it's also true to say that my foot is currently in the wrong place for me to perceive it in the bodily mode. Why is this not a Strawsonian disabling condition for perceiving my foot? Well, for several reasons. Strawsonian disabling conditions are canonical, and this is a non-canonical disabling condition. It's the outcome of a particular and peculiar circumstance involving me having sat still for a while in a cold room. 
And furthermore, my foot's being in the wrong place to be perceived in this case is not a way for my foot to be out of range or masked or obscured to bodily awareness. Strassonian disabling conditions for perceiving things are specifications of what it is to be in the wrong place for one to perceive something because it's either out of range or masked or obscured. And we can also see that this is a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for bodily awareness because it's analogous to sense-perceptual disabling conditions that are also not Strawsonian ones. So this disabling condition is analogous, for example, to olfactory fatigue, the temporary inability to perceive a particular odour due to sensory adaptation. Prolonged exposure to an odour is a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for perceiving it. If this condition obtains, then you can reinstate normal receptivity by, for instance, sniffing coffee beans. Moving one's foot to a new location in the cold room is not like bringing it back into view, it's like sniffing coffee beans. So I claim somewhat <coughs> boldly that other counterexamples to the claim that bodily awareness lacks Dorsonian disabling conditions can be met similarly. So I take it then that you grant that we cannot maintain the perceptual relation we stand into our bodies by ensuring that Strawsonian disabling conditions for perceiving it don't obtain just because it has no such conditions. <coughs> now, this is not yet enough to establish that bodily awareness, uh, that perceptual monitoring um, in the bodily mode does not involve maintaining the perceptual relation that we stand into our bodies because we might maintain it in some other way, namely by ensuring that its non-Strawsonian disabling conditions don't, um, aren't met. So the next question I need to answer is this one. Might we, in perceptual monitoring, maintain the, the relation we stand into our bodies by ensuring that its non-Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain? So the purpose of this last and quite long section is to argue that... Um, the answer to this question is no. So whilst the purpose of this section is to discuss bodily awareness in particular and its non-Strawsonian disabling conditions, I'm going to argue that the answer to this question is no alongside considering whether sense-perceptual monitoring also involves ensuring that non-Strawsonian disabling conditions for sense-perception do not obtain. So if sense-perceptual monitoring involves ensuring that its non-Strawsonian disabling conditions do not obtain, then contrary to what I've said so far, Strawsonian disabling conditions don't have any special involvement <laughs> in sense-perceptual monitoring. And furthermore, reasons for thinking that we don't ensure that these conditions don't obtain in sense-perceptual monitoring and bodily perceptual monitoring are the same, so it's profitable to consider both together. So, I'm going to argue that the answer to this question is no, and at the same time argue that in sense-perceptual monitoring, in looking at things, for example, we're not also ensuring that it's non-Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain. Since we're concerned to know whether bodily perceptual monitoring involves maintaining the perceptual relation to our bodies, the non-Strawsonian disabling conditions that are going to be relevant are those that are total, so they're ones that where they obtain, you don't perceive your body at all, or the body part at all. So these are conditions that don't merely disable the perception of a property of the body or its optimal perception. So in the rest of what follows, 
non-Strawsonian disabling conditions should be read as non-Strawsonian total disabling conditions. And here are some representative examples. First of all, for bodily awareness. So removal of your finger is a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for bodily awareness of your finger. And appropriate receptors in one's finger not working is also a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for perception of your finger in the bodily mode. And a couple of examples from vision. Destruction of the goose is quite clearly a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for seeing the goose. If you destroy it, you can't see it anymore. As is um, appropriate receptors in one's eyes not working. If the receptors in your eyes are badly damaged enough, then you're not going to see the goose. And that's a non-Strawsonian disabling condition for visual perception of it. The first argument for the claim that we don't ensure that conditions like these um, don't obtain in perceptual monitoring is just that it seems quite implausible that we do. It's implausible to think that perceptual monitoring involves ensuring that conditions like these don't obtain. It's implausible to think that when you're looking at something, you're ensuring that you don't destroy it, or when you're attending to your finger, that you're ensuring that you don't inadvertently lop it off. We can imagine some scenarios in which it's true to say that, for example, looking at the goose or perceptually monitoring your finger in the bodily mood does involve ensuring that one of these conditions doesn't obtain. So, for example, if a goose is both very vicious and of a very rare breed, and I've been tasked with destroying it, I might, for a period of time, hold off from destroying it so that I can see it for a bit longer. Similarly, one can, I think, imagine deliberately not chopping off one's finger precisely so that you can attend to it for a little while longer. But it doesn't seem at all plausible that you're always ensuring that conditions like these don't obtain whenever you look at the goose or attend to your finger and so on. And we wouldn't be at all inclined to say that someone is not perceptually monitoring, say, a goose or their finger, if they didn't appear to be making any effort to ensure that conditions like these don't obtain. So this first argument for answering no to the question at the top of the slide is too quick. So someone who's sceptical about the whole enterprise up to now might object to this argument as follows. So earlier, I argued that even in cases when one's not moving about as one looks at things, one is agentially maintaining the perceptual relation one stands into objects in that one's disposed to make those movements as necessary. It's equally plausible, by which they might mean not plausible either, says my imaginary objector, to say that one's disposed to do what's necessary to ensure that non-Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain in perceptual monitoring too. The fact that one doesn't seem to be making any effort to ensure that they don't obtain shows only that these dispositions, the ones relevant to the non-Strawsonian disabling conditions, are even less likely to manifest themselves. So I'm not sure how to respond to that objection directly. I want to say just, well, it's entirely implausible to think that we're disposed to ensure that, for example, our fingers remain attached to our hands whenever we attend to them. But in case that's not convincing, here's another argument instead. So the second argument to be spelled out in detail below is that any grasp of disabling conditions exploited in perceptual monitoring 
must be an implicit grasp of those disabling conditions. So that's the first step of the argument. However, cases of ensuring that non-Strawsonian disabling conditions are not met when one perceptually monitors involve exploiting an explicit grasp of those disabling conditions. So those cases don't give us any reason to think that perceptual monitoring in the bodily mode involves maintaining the perceptual relation that we stand into our bodies. So let's work through these um, steps of the argument in a bit more detail. So the first step of the argument, any grasp of disabling conditions exploited in perceptual monitoring must be an implicit rather than an explicit grasp. Do you have an explicit grasp of disabling conditions for perceiving things? If you can give an appropriate explanation of why you perceived what you did or didn't perceive what you did on some occasion that makes appeal to some such disabling condition. And if the grasp you have of a disabling condition for, say, seeing something is explicit, then you can exploit that grasp in order to maintain the perceptual relation you stand into something by engaging in practical reasoning about how to do so that employs that disabling condition as a premise. So, for example, um, in order to maintain the perceptual relation with the goose in the example mentioned earlier, I might reason thus. I want to keep seeing the goose. In order to do so, I must not destroy it. Thus, I won't destroy the goose. If very young children don't have an explicit grasp of Strawsonian or any other disabling conditions. Evidence for this comes from the fact that three-year-olds, for example, are very much less able than older children to give explanations of what others have perceived. So they can answer, can Ernie see the duck when the duck is behind the wall correctly, i.e. no, Ernie can't see the duck. But they can't say why Ernie can't see the duck. And children under the age of four have a more general inability to say how they acquired an item of knowledge by, for example, seeing, feeling, or even being told. O'Neill and Chong found that this is so even when children are given the opportunity to show experimenters how they found something out rather than by telling them. What this shows is that if perceptual monitoring involves maintaining the perceptual relation, by exploiting some kind of grasp of disabling conditions, then the grasp involved must be implicit rather than explicit. Exploiting an implicit grasp of perceptual disabling conditions for perceiving an object, we can understand just as a matter of doing the right things and not doing the wrong things in order to perceive or keep perceiving an object. And there is evidence that even very young children have an implicit grasp of Strawsonian disabling conditions. So, for example, in the Yanov and Schatz experiments just mentioned, the youngest children tested, the three-year-olds, demonstrated that they could understand the differential effects of occlusion on hearing versus touching, i.e. that something can be heard but not felt through a barrier, and assessed correctly the effects of distance on hearing and seeing versus touching when they were just asked the questions about, can Ernie see the duck? So they could answer those sorts of questions even though they couldn't provide any sort of explanation. And you might just take it to be obvious that young infants can look at and listen to the things around them. So all that is just step one of the argument. 
What makes it reasonable to think that we ever exploit any kind of grasp of the non-Strawsonian disabling conditions in order to maintain the perceptual relation to our body or other objects is that we can think up some examples of doing so, some which I mentioned earlier. And two things are notable about the examples that one thus thinks up. So first of all, one imagines cases of exploiting an explicit grasp of those non-Strawsonian disabling conditions. So when I decide, as before, to hold off from destroying the goose briefly in order to look at it for a bit longer, I engage in practical reasoning that employs as a premise the fact that if I destroy the goose, I'll no longer be able to see it. So that feature of the examples suggests that at least in advance of further argument or evidence, we shouldn't think that we exploit what grasp we have of non-Strawsonian disabling conditions in the right kind of way for it to be plausible that that characterises all perceptual monitoring. The second and related notable thing about cases in which one exploits a grasp of non-Strawsonian disabling conditions in maintaining the perceptual relation is that in such cases, one ensures that such conditions don't obtain intentionally. If you were to ask me, as I hold off from destroying the goose, what am I doing? I would say, I'm holding off from destroying it so that I can look at it for a bit longer. In perceptual monitoring, in contrast, one doesn't maintain the perceptual relation or ensure that disabling conditions are not met intentionally. Although, of course, any movements that one makes in so doing will be intentional under some description. So if I'm asked what I'm doing in the normal case when I'm looking at the goose, I'll say something like trying to work out what the goose is doing or maybe just watching the goose. And of course you can ensure that Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain intentionally as well. Consider, for example, an arachnophobe undergoing aversion therapy. So she might deliberately or intentionally maintain the perceptual relation she stands in to a horrible spider, consciously and with effort, staying near enough to see it and not turning away. But what the arachnophobe is doing in that case is something over and above just looking at the spider. To be clear, when one just looks at something, or otherwise sense perceptually monitors it, one doesn't maintain the perceptual relation to that thing intentionally. The account defended here doesn't entail that simply looking at things is like undergoing aversion therapy. So, back to our argument. I've been defending the second step of the argument that says that the examples we can think of of maintaining the perceptual relation by ensuring that non-Strawsonian disabling conditions aren't met are all cases of exploiting an explicit grasp of those disabling conditions. So what? Well, that means, I think, that we're safe to conclude step three here at the bottom of the slide. So at least the examples we can think of of exploiting non-Strawsonian disabling conditions to maintain the perceptual relation don't give us any reason to think otherwise. So we asked the question at the top of the slide here, do we maintain the perceptual relation to our bodies in perceptual monitoring by ensuring that non-Strawsonian conditions don't obtain. Because whilst we might accept that we don't maintain the perceptual relation to our bodies by ensuring that Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain, of course, there are no such conditions, uh, 
we might nevertheless maintain it by ensuring that its non-Strawsonian conditions are not met. And I've argued now that we don't. We don't maintain the relation we stand into our bodies by ensuring that its non-Strawsonian disabling conditions don't obtain in bodily perceptual monitoring. <coughs> Thus, it's safe to conclude that whilst perceptual monitoring in sense perception involves maintaining the perceptual relation to objects, perceptual monitoring in bodily awareness does not involve maintaining the perceptual relation to one's body. So I've been arguing then that bodily awareness and sense perception differ agentially. And it probably hasn't escaped notice. Part of the reason for this agential difference has something to do with the presence in the one case and the absence in the other of sense organs construed in some way or another. So according to Strawson, the naive concept of perception includes that of a perspective or view from a certain point of view determined by the position and orientation of the appropriate organs of sense. And it's from this aspect of perceiving that the conditions that I've been calling Strawsonian disabling conditions, according to Strawson, flow. But the lack of agential maintenance of the perceptual relation in perceptual monitoring in the bodily mode is also a result of our not having the right kind of grasp of non-Strawsonian disabling conditions to be able to exploit them as we do the Strawsonian disabling conditions in sense perceptual monitoring. To sum up, if what I've argued here is right, then bodily awareness differs from sense perception not only phenomenologically and representationally, but also agentially. When we sense perceptually monitor things, we make a distinctive contribution to our mental lives. We agentially maintain the perceptual relation that we stand in to the objects we perceive. And the same is not true of bodily awareness. There are interesting relationships to be explored between the phenomenological, representational and agential differences between sense perception and bodily awareness. And there is much that might be said also about how the agential difference between sense perception and bodily awareness allows the latter to play some important roles it has for us, for example, in preventing harm to our bodies and in the guidance of action, and also perhaps in providing the point of origin for experiences in our sense perceptual modes. But all that will have to make wait for another occasion. As stated at the outset, my interest in all these differences is motivated by wanting to explore whether what makes a faculty a sense is something over and above its being a perceptual faculty. So I end with just one remark on that broader motivating question. If bodily awareness is not a sense, in part or in whole, because it differs from sense perception agentially, then bodily awareness is not a sense, only contingently. Now, as we've seen, bodily awareness and sense perception differ agentially, partly because sense perception has Strawsonian disabling conditions, and we live in a world in which the movement of objects relative, relative to us is always a possibility. So if we want to find out about those objects, particularly if we want to find out about them things that can be only known via observation over a period of time, then we have to do something to keep them in view. There are no other factors, though, in the extra-bodily world or in our perceptual equipment that mean that just finding out about our bodies requires such vigilance. There might have been, though, in which case, if this is part of the truth, 
of what makes a faculty a sense, then bodily awareness might have been a sense too. That's the end. <laughs>